Hello, I'm Kate Chabot and welcome to SITREP, where each week we analyse the key defence and security issues shaping the UK and the world. Germany claims a key Russian opposition leader has been poisoned by Novichok. We hear from a leading expert on chemical weapons. Is the international community doing enough to stop their use? The whole thing is incredible. Another Novichok poisoning of somebody who has opposed the Russian state. It is a calling card for the Russian state. What are the causes behind the growing tension in the eastern Mediterranean between Greece and Turkey? This is not just a purely military confrontation. It's about uh, economic resources, gas. Big changes for Gurkha recruitment, but still no space for women, at least not yet. As all roles are in defence, they are all open to anybody of any sex. Um, Right now, that's not something that the Nepalese government will allow us to entertain. And how some of Britain's rarest reptiles are flourishing in a military fuel site. The German government says the Russian opposition politician Alexei Navalny was poisoned with a Novichok nerve agent. Boris Johnson tweeted, The Russian government must now explain what happened to Mr Navalny. We will work with international partners to ensure justice is done. Alexei Navalny was airlifted to Berlin in a coma after falling ill on a flight in Russia's Siberia region last month. His team says he was poisoned on President Vladimir Putin's orders. The Kremlin has dismissed the allegation. Well, Hamish de Bretton-Gordon is the former commander of the Joint Chemical, Biological, Radiological and Nuclear Regiment. He's advised the government on this issue and was consulted during the Salisbury poisonings in 2018. Well... The whole thing is incredible. Uh, the fact that we've had a, another Novichok poisoning of somebody who has opposed the Russian state. And we know that Novichok was only ever ba- made by the Russians in Russia. You know, it is a calling card for the Russian state and is very similar to the Sergei Skripal assassination attempt in Salisbury two years ago. Um, very sadly, uh, uh, innocent bystander Dawn Sturgis died. So it's really for the Russians to explain how this uh, key critic of the government is now seriously ill in hospital in Germany. And in Salisbury, the Novichok was smeared on a door handle. In this case, his supporters suspect poison was put in his tea at Tomsk Airport. But wouldn't swallowing Novichok have had a faster reaction? It should have done. And I, I'm not sure that the Novichok in the tea story holds an awful lot to it because, uh, yeah, if you ingest Novichok, you would expect somebody to die very quickly, even from a very small amount, because the Novichok gets into your system and shuts down your major organs like your heart and lungs very, very quickly. I, I think it's more likely it's probably something similar to the Salisbury attack, perhaps smeared on a door handle or on a table where they knew that uh, this chap was going to go. Now, the real concern is, you know, we all know that it took 18 months to decontaminate Salisbury and thousands of people were affected. So if I was the Russian state, I would be investigating this very, very quickly, cordoning off areas and start to try and find this stuff, which the Russians designed so that you couldn't detect it. They might know a bit better and get it cleaned up. Otherwise, there could be more casualties. In your new book, Chemical Warrior, you say there should generally be more awareness and discussion in the UK about chemical weapons. Didn't Salisbury really bring this home? Yes, I think it it did. And and it should do. And this really reinforces it. I've been a fierce critic of all in the international community with power 
uh, after the massive nerve-agent attack in Syria in August 2013, when up to 2,000 people died, Obama's red line was crossed and the international community didn't really react. I think it then gave a, a free rein to every dictator, despot, rogue state and terrorist to use it. And yet again, we've seen another use of a deadly chemical weapon. And you've been working in this field for many years now in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria. What difference do you think the Organisation for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons has really made? Well, I think historically they've done a fantastic job and they were, of course, the Nobel Peace Prize winners for their activities in Syria. But things are moving on. I think they were configured very much in the Cold War to deal with mass uh, chemical weapon stockpiles in the major countries. And they did that and they were very successful. When it comes to events like this, very small amounts used. And the rules are that in this case, the Russians should ask the OPCW to come and investigate. Now that is probably unlikely, I think. And the Germans officially probably can't get them in. So I think it's rules. They need to have a good look on how they do their business and bring it into you know the 21st century. They've done a fantastic job, but you know, life has changed, and I think they need to adapt to the current situation. That was Hamish de Breton Gordon. Well, joining me now is Lucy Fisher, defence editor at The Times, and our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Um, Lucy, we understand that Porton Down was not involved in the testing, but the British government will be liaising with Germany over this. Yes, um, very swift uh, response uh, yesterday from the British government, Boris Johnson. Uh, calling on uh, Vladimir Putin to explain the outrageous uh, poisoning uh, of Alexei Navalny, as he described it, uh, Dominic Raab, the foreign secretary, uh, expressing his deep concern. In a sense, I, I think that this is is um, obviously an appalling thing to have happened, but a gift for the British government, just providing an extra layer of evidence to the to the sense that this is how the Russians operate. You know, any doubts um, surrounding any sort of conspiracy theorists about what happened to the Skripals in Salisbury in 2018 um, is further undermined by what's happened in in the past uh, in the past 24 hours. Christopher, after Salisbury, more than 20 countries expelled Russian diplomats. What do you think the response will be this time? First thing to understand is that is that Mr. Putin uh, couldn't care less what we do. Um, there isn't a legal channel to, to resolve it. Uh, the Prime Minister uh, Boris Johnson says that we've got to demand justice, make sure there is a we resolve this with justice. Well, there is no justice rule. There is no channel through which you could actually take Russia to a to a higher court. Uh, that's the first thing. And the second thing is, you know, more than 20 countries expelled Russian diplomats. Fat lot of good that did, if we're going to believe this story. A fat lot of good it did, because they just carried on as normal. Stay with us, both of you, please. Now, tensions are rising in the eastern Mediterranean between Greece and Turkey in a dispute over energy reserves, which has led to a war of words between the two countries. The countries who are both NATO members are at loggerheads over the discovery of gas deposits off Crete and Cyprus in disputed waters. Both countries are conducting naval exercises and Turkey has extended the mission of its seismic survey ship between Crete and Cyprus. The European Commission is calling for dialogue. Well, Lord Hane is a former UN ambassador and was the UK special representative for Cyprus between 1996 and 2003. Earlier, I asked him about the background to the dispute over gas. Those uh, deposits were discovered some years ago, and they are part of a much bigger area of the eastern Mediterranean, which includes uh, Israeli waters, Egyptian waters, uh, and so on, uh, which have a lot of gas in them. And 
Of course, that's very attractive to those within whose uh, exclusive economic zone those gas supplies lie, and some of them lie in Cyprus. So for some years now, there have been uh, plans, more than plans, drilling to develop those gas reserves, and that's given rise to some pretty sharp tensions, because although there's no doubt at all about the gas belonging to Cyprus, uh, which is a member of the United Nations, it is, of course, uh, Cyprus's job to make sure that the benefits of those go to all the inhabitants of the island. And so long as the island is divided, they're not going to do so. I mean, Turkey says it's acting in pursuit of its rights. Greece says it will not be blackmailed. There doesn't seem to be much room for compromise at the moment, does there? Well, I don't think there's any room for compromise at all between Greece and Turkey, because the uh, United Nations uh, Law of the Sea Convention lays down precisely where uh, these reserves lie and in whose waters they lie. And what about NATO? They are both... NATO members. Could NATO play any role? Well, there have been very, very sharp tensions in the past between Turkey and Greece uh, long before this issue of gas arose. Uh, And uh, on one occasion at least, um, uh, about 20 years ago, NATO played a very helpful role when uh, Turkish and Greek fighter planes were flying within inches of each other uh, over the disputed areas between them. And uh, that was uh, defused by NATO having a kind of role to ensure to deconflict the two lots of fighters. So it is possible. But um, I I, I don't know whether that is uh, at all a feasible approach in the present case, partly because this is not just a purely military confrontation. It's about uh, economic resources, gas, Indeed. And other countries are also getting involved, including Egypt. How worried are you that this is really going to escalate? It shouldn't. But experience tells one that simply saying that uh, something won't escalate doesn't stop it escalating. You have to actually have some active diplomacy. You have to have try and get people to talk to each other, to scale down the rhetoric, to uh, exercise restraint, and most important of all, in this particular case, to address the heart of the matter, which is the Cyprus dispute. Uh, I've always taken the view that one day it can and should be resolved, uh, but it doesn't look very promising at the moment. That was Lord Hannay. Well, with me still are Lucy Fisher and Christopher Lee. Uh, Lucy, the EU condemned Turkey in June for what they described as illegal drilling in waters near Cyprus. Turkey said it was drilling inside its continental shelf, complying with international law. How seriously is NATO taking this dispute, do you think? Well, I think both uh, NATO uh, and the EU uh, are taking this incredibly seriously. In NATO, I think that the, at the moment, you know, uh, diplomats um, and analysts and officials are all trying their best to um, de-escalate uh, the tensions to stop uh, uh, any further escalation. I think in the EU, we've obviously seen um, France um, side with Greece, um, talk of EU sanctions being um, levied on Turkey. It, it, it remains to be seen uh, how, how it goes on the European side. I think obviously the worrying development overnight uh, is is the US, um, uh, you know, lifting its partial arms embargo on Greek Cyprus that's been in place since 1987. Mm, and Christopher, this is a regional issue beyond the main countries involved, isn't it? 
Well, yes, and that's where you get a, a, an idea of NATO's position to say, look, we've got to look further. For example, uh, Turkey sending troops to, to Libya, the, the relationship with Egypt. I think that NATO can't do very much about this until it finds something. It finds something that both sides, or at least one of the sides, will bend, and there isn't there at the, at the moment. The only thing I think could ever change change the attitude of uh, of Turkey, for example, who don't forget in 1974 invaded northern uh, Cyprus and is still there. Um, the only thing they could probably find is some sort of candidate membership for Turkey in the EU. At the point that Turkey needs that membership, and in the past it says it does, uh, if that can be used as a bait uh, for calling this off. But the biggest bait of all is, is natural resources, as gas. Uh, and it's not just a question of gas is there. It is a question that both sides are willing to move or claim their, uh, their, their, their regional uh, boundaries uh, in an exaggerated way just to prove that the other side shouldn't be in there sort of uh, looking for it. And lastly, the Foreign and Commonwealth Office and the Department for International Development officially merged this week. Uh, Lucy, the Foreign Secretary, has insisted Britain would keep to its commitments on development spending, but there have been reports some of the money could be spent on defence and intelligence. Yes, well, uh, that, that's absolutely right. Um, you know, my understanding is that the uh, integrated review into foreign policy, defence and security is not necessarily cost-neutral. Uh, and indeed, we've heard um, many people in the defence uh community arguing that not only does uh, the government need to give more money to uh, boost current um, defence kit programmes, um, ensure that uh, traditional capabilities are maintained to uh, retain the UK's tier one standard. But of course, we need to invest in cutting edge and new technologies, whether that's cyber weapons, uh, artificial intelligence uh, enabled drones uh, and autonomous and unmanned platforms. It certainly is an ongoing conversation in government whether some of the aid budget, which this year was supposed to total 15.8 billion, you know, a colossal sum um, before the uh, economic fallout from coronavirus, whether some of that, perhaps a couple of billion, um, could be apportioned to defence. And Christopher, we'll have an integrated review on defence and security. We're told by the end of the year. Do we have to wait till then until we see how this is all going to pan out? We may have an integrated review by the end of the year. We live in troubled times where we don't quite know uh, how far and how quickly we can we can actually follow a, for example, a review. The terms of that review may change, and considerably, that's likely to be this time next year. So you think it's going to be delayed? Do you? It's not a question of delaying it. It's a question of this, the pace at which you can actually run it at the moment. And certainly, certainly there are people in the MOD, and certainly there are people in the. In the, in the Foreign Office and the Treasury and Number 10 Downing Street, who say, you know, things change on the day. It's not going to happen as quickly as some people think. Christopher, stay with us. Lucy Fisher, thank you for your time today. This is Zitrap. The Colonel of the Brigade of Gurkhas has confirmed dramatic changes to selection this year in Nepal. At Gurkha Company's annual cap badging ceremony, where recruits learn which regiment they'll become part of, Colonel Jody Davis said they would meet their recruit quota for 2021 by inviting unsuccessful candidates back from last year. He also revealed that talks over whether women might be allowed to apply were to restart. From Catterick, Hannah King reports. 3033758888 training riflemen Robin Grung to Azia. Cap badging day in Nepali, Polton Chenout. Dilkumar Majio. 
It's a great tradition in Gurkha Company, in which each recruit is shouted by name, told their regiment, then they sprint across the square at a million miles an hour to be welcomed by officers from their new home. Mom, I'm feeling very happy and I'm eager to meet my new families. When he called out my name beside, along with it, he called GSPS then. Uh, it, my whole body was shaking. Yes, I was really, really happy. My legs are still shaking. Still now? Yes, ma'am. Training riflemen Tika Garung and Sushan Ramal there. With a record 90% getting their first choice of regiment, they were amongst many happy recruits in Gurkha Company. But for those in Nepal wanting to follow in their footsteps, the future's less certain. With applications to the British Army cancelled this year due to COVID, British Gurkhas Nepal has decided to invite unsuccessful candidates back from last year. Here's Colonel of the Brigade of Gurkhas, Jody Davis. We've effectively short-circuited um, and gone back to those that were very successful last year. Is there any concern about a drop in standards given that though? Um, not given... The, the years worth of training here and how hard the, the staff will work and how professional they are. The standard is so high um, with about 4% of those that show interest being selected. Uh, we're not concerned about any perceived drop in standard because when they um, come here to Catterick and the, the second battalion and through Gurkha Company will know that at the end of that training they'll be absolutely ready to take their place in the field army. Flights into Kathmandu have just restarted, but only for a select few diplomats and aid workers. So at present, recruiting staff from the UK can't get there, though it's hoped this will change in time for next year's intake. And then there's the question of women. Two years ago, rumours leaked to the press that they could apply this year, but that wasn't to be, and an agreement is yet to be reached. Colonel Jodie Davis again. Regarding female recruitment in the Brigade Gurkhas, um, as all roles are in defence, um, they are all open to anybody of any sex. Um, right now that's not something that the Nepalese government will allow us to entertain. Um, there are a whole bunch of high-level discussions and talks going on um, regarding service of Gurkhas in the British Army. Um, the Indian Army and the Singapore Police Force, and it's you know, another issue that's wrapped up in those talks. There's been a, a large pause as um, the governments have been focused on the pandemic and in you know, a national situation, um, but that's something that with our embassy staff now back in greater numbers, um, those talks will be re-initiated. Um, but with a, a sort of rolling annual decision point in February to be able to attract and select, then we're looking at, at a, a minimum of another year. As in girls may be able to apply for the intake applying in 2021 for entry in 2022? Um, that is, that's a possibility and something that we are open, ready and willing for. 3033-8344, training riflemen, Bimba, Anjuk, Vote, Wanazia. For these young recruits in Catrick, today their futures became a little clearer. For thousands of hopeful teenagers in Nepal, there may be some time to wait. That report by Hannah King.
Now, some of the UK's rarest reptiles have been given a safe haven on a military site in the heart of Dorset as part of the MOD's drive to create a sustainable estate where wildlife can flourish. At the invitation of the Defence Infrastructure Organisation, volunteers and staff from the Westmore's Defence Fuel Site teamed up with the Amphibian and Reptile Conservation, the ARC Trust, to improve the two-hectare site of wet and dry heathland. Well, earlier I spoke to the Trust's chairman, John Webster. So the species that we find on this particular site are all six native species of reptiles that are found in the UK. So that are three species of snake, the grass snake, the adder and the smooth snake, and three species of lizard, the common lizard, the sand lizard and the, the slow worm. Two of those species are now very restricted range and they're only found on the heathlands of Surrey, Hampshire and Dorset. So this site is particularly good because of its restricted access and it has very good populations of all six species, which we're really excited about. In fact, it's so restricted that trying to get past the guardhouse is quite a performance. <laughs> um, so we've had this close relationship with the military um, and I think we're recognised as experts in managing the dry heath. So we were approached by the senior ecologist to say that this is a site that does require some more habitat management Basically, could you come in and uh, and help us out with that? And what is involved in this project? What we do is that we go in uh, with, a, with a team, often with volunteers, and we will do physical habitat management. So that will be thinning out the gorse, it will be thinning out some of the pine trees. So just keeping this uneven age mosaic of dwarf shrub and also creating areas of open sand which are very important not only for the sand lizard that lays its eggs uh, in the sand but also for the real host of invertebrates that also um, require areas of open sand. I mean it's really funny because you wouldn't not necessarily think that military land is a place where conservation thrives but it seems to be working very well for you. It works extremely well in fact some of the highest uh, reptile populations are actually found on the military sites. I mean, a number of them. I mean, we have one in North Hampshire, which contains the only remaining breeding population of the very rare Natterjack toad, which is now almost extinct in southern England. And there's just one site left that we've been managing for, for over 50 years now. This year was particularly good because we had quite a lot of early, you know, early, early spring warmth and uh, and rainfall. But that that holds the largest population of natterjack toads um, in southern England. And it's also because um, a lot of the the ranges, you know, they are in constant use. So of course you don't have, you have restricted public access. And some of these sites, you know, particularly those that are used for small arms, you know, are in absolutely fantastic condition. The only real risk will come about, to, you know, for fire. That was John Webster. We're still with us as Christopher Lee. Uh, Christopher, just how involved is the military in conservation? Because it's not something that usually springs to mind when you think of the military, is it? Well, you've only got to look at the size of the military estate, as it's called. And that's everything from buildings to, to land masses like Salisbury Plain. Uh, like some of the beach masses they, ha they have for, uh, for training Royal Marines and also for inf infantrymen, to realise that the military probably look after more of the country uh, as a conservationist than anybody, any other single organisation apart from National Trust. If you, if you drive across Salisbury Plain, it's beautifully kept. It's in a great nick. 
if you go across the south coast of England, a lot of the beaches there, especially in the southeast, Lyd is a very good example, where you can actually shoot out into the sea with live ammunition across the beaches, uh, where you can have mock, uh, mock towns so that you can, you can rehearse or you can exercise soldiers uh, breaking into a house. Uh, you can do that in the safety of knowing that you've looked after the thing again. It won't fall apart. And so you actually do have officers whose job it is is to make sure that furry things and squirrels and things like that are not going to be disturbed by the exercises. All right, stay with us, Christopher. News, discussions and analysis. This is Zitwet. It's being hailed as the most significant change to how Royal Marines operate since World War II, the development of future commando force. The concept is based on smaller, more versatile teams that can be easily tailored for different missions. As part of its evolution, Marines from 40 Commando have been testing out new ways of working during training exercises. Bryony Williams joined them at Bovington Training Area. Marines from 40 Commando trying to find the enemy. This may sound like standard commando training, but there's a difference. Future commando force concepts are being tested. Well, here at Bovington, there are around 60 personnel from 40 commando. They're split into three troops, all trying to find and fight each other. They're experimenting with some new equipment and alternative team structures. Marines need to get used to working in formations of varying sizes. Traditionally, they have worked in sections of eight, but now teams of different sizes could be broken down to smaller bespoke groups for specialist operations. Rather than being deployed from the UK, now Marines might be expected to be permanently on a ship in the Middle East or the Mediterranean or serving on an aircraft carrier. This is so groups of high readiness Marines can be in a forward position for missions at a moment's notice. It's exciting, exciting times. Um, Edward Hart is a Marine with 40 yeah. Commando. So we're just trialling everything. So like regards to like small, small man teams, instead of pushing out of sections, we're going as four, four man teams and sort of seeing how it works and how we could deal with casualties and, and stuff like that. So yeah, it's still a bit of trial and error at the moment. There are also some very nuanced changes. Troops on the ground will have more autonomy when they carry out tasking so they can work in a more focused way, tailoring the expertise that are needed for whatever mission they are sent on. For these Marines, it's a chance to contribute and develop future commando force, as Marine Matt Dowie explains. As Marines, our input from exercises like this and others is really being used to help form the concept. So you can use uh, what goes well, what goes badly, uh, and essentially build that into what we hope to be a really great future commander force concept over the next uh, coming years. Not used on this exercise, but coming soon, the Marines will have new uniforms and new weapons. Autonomous technology is already being tested and integrated too. But despite the transformation, there are still fundamental skills Marines need that will never change. If you're hunting the enemy, making sure the enemy can't find you. 
Here's Matt Dowie again. Those basic skills are essentially the foundation that everything's built upon. Uh, so there's no use having fancy kit or the equipment if you don't have those basics drilled down. So the purpose of this week uh, is essentially to trial future Commander Force concepts. Uh, and the especially important part is it's force on force. And that's where not being seen really comes into play. We're cammed up, we have cam cream on our faces. Uh, when we are close to enemy, we'll cam up uh, parts of our webbing, parts of our uh, plate carriers as well. As we're force on force, it can be really easy to get seen, get pinged, and just one small mistake can essentially lead to your entire operation being disrupted. Training with elements of experimentation will continue as future commando force pursues a more agile and lethal capability for the UK. Stop it! That report by Bryony Williams. Uh, Christopher Lee, how will this new strategy change the role of the Royal Marines? It'll give it, I think, if it, if it continues to go ahead and these things do change, don't they? It's not a question of, as it, people sort of wonder, get your hands off the Royal Marines and Royal Marine Commando. It's, it's, it's not that at all. 4-2 Commando will become the specialist, what the Apple calls the go-to unit of maritime operations. And it's, it's defining what they do. Do you remember the, the oil tanker that was heading for uh, Syria uh, uh, and the Royal Marines suddenly went along to Gibraltar, went down to Gibraltar and knocked it off and knocked it off in, in, in three days' notice. It's that sort of expertise that they were developing develop even further. It's three commando brigade uh, with, with, with a slightly different look, look to it. Christopher, thank you very much. That's it from me, Kate Chabot, and from Christopher Lee. Thanks to all of our guests. Don't forget, you can always get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. While you're online, why not subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode at bfbs.com slash SITREP. For now, though, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.